You know, I really appreciate uh, this time of year for many reasons, but one of them is because of the communication that we receive from our missionaries. And they will send out letters, and many times you will hear of traditions in other parts of the world. And, and uh, we received a letter just this week from one of our missionaries, Max Lemp, and his wife, uh, Claire, and their son, Gideon. Uh, and they're in Cambridge, England right now because Claire has some graduate studies going on there. And so he transferred. He's with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And so they transferred his work from campus staff where he was working here in Duluth, Minnesota, to the InterVarsity Link Program, a department in InterVarsity that sends USA staff to serve with sister ministries overseas. And he said, I've been placed with an international student ministry called Friends International, where we equip students and churches to host international groups we call cafes for foreign students to practice English, find community, meet local families, and explore the teachings of Jesus. I've met students from over 30 countries and six continents in just three months. And he goes on to say, you learn quick, very quickly to speak slowly, listen fiercely, and never make assumptions about anything, even the language you are speaking. I've only scratched the surface. He said, I have a lot to learn. And I've been reflecting on a story from some of my students as Christmas approaches. Recently, it snowed in Cambridge. It only snows a few times a year here, so when it does, it's a big deal. Gideon and I watched as almost everybody on the bike pass on the way to school had their phones out to take pictures, throw snowballs, and make snowmen. Later that evening, I went out for dinner with some volunteers and students. Best Turkish food I've ever had. Some Indian students and a student from Peru were telling stories of staying up until 3 a.m., wandering around the city while it was snowing. They'd never seen snow before. We'll bring them here. We'll show them a little bit. <laughs> this was their first experience of a snowy winter. And just like little kids, they were out and about in the cold and the snow to experience it. In laughs and wonder, they told me stories and showed me pictures of making snow angels, the market at night in the snow, of dancing and throwing snowballs in the street. I know snow very well, and the crisp air and crunchy paths have been a welcome reminder of home. He's from Duluth, Minnesota. Yet snow is snow. It happens every year. And similarly, Christmas is Christmas. It happens every year. But what if we opened ourselves up to the same kind of wonder that my friend had to, friends had to snow as to the reality of Christmas? The reality of God coming to earth as a human. The, that instead of just looking at it like we always do, maybe from our favorite comfortable vantage point, we ran outside to frolic in it. That instead of just singing along this year, we danced played, mused, and if we're really honest, fought tooth and nail for the wonder of the, at the advent of love himself coming into the world. My prayer for you and for me this Christmas season is that the wonder of God would break out or maybe even be rekindled in you this year. The wonder of his love itself, himself, coming into the world. You know, no one expected Jesus to come the way he did. 
Yet the way he came is every bit as important as his coming itself. You know, according to the Apostle Paul, the manger is the message. Now, Paul rarely gets credit for Advent Reflections because Advent Reflections are all about Joseph and Mary and the shepherds and the wise men and, and all of that and the gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, not Paul. But Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired New Testament song, that's what Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is. It's an early church hymn, and it's an eloquent summary of what the Bethlehem, what Bethlehem in the stable initiated. It speaks loud and clear of the descended Messiah that is now the ascended Christ who reigns over us. So I'm going to ask you to listen carefully as I read it, and listen with wonder as I read this to you, as if you were hearing this for the first time. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a, a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yes, I must agree that the Apostle Paul was not recording a Christmas homily here. His purpose was more basic than that. He was trying to advise the church at Philippi regarding some internal tensions that existed among some of their members. So that's what he's doing. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, it says, Therefore, if, any, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 2, he addresses one of the issues in the church. I plead with you, Adia, and I plead with Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. These two women were at loggerheads, at conflict one another, with one another. And Paul is instructing the church that the resolution to this internal strife in the church is humility, the very path that Jesus took when he left glory and came to this earth. Verse 6 says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Jesus had every advantage and every single benefit of his deity. In fact, on the second Sunday of Advent here, three weeks ago here at Mission Covenant Church, we discussed this in detail, this very thing, when we spoke about the incarnation of Christ. We read from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made. 
that has been made. And Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17 was the next text we went and looked at and studied. And it says, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything that you see out there in this world, everything in creation has a tag on it. And it says, made by Jesus. And yet the message of the early church hymn here in Philippians chapter 2 isn't Christ the creator. It's Christ the incarnate one. Verse 7, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. The one who created everything made himself nothing. Jesus became human. He took on the very nature of a servant. He entered this world not to make demands upon us, but so that he could show us and we could see his heart of love, his heart of love for us. And to do this, he had to put on hold some of his divine advantage. Think for a moment about all the ridiculous things people tried to do to Jesus and the things they did, ridiculous things they did to Jesus. Number one, attempting to stone him to death because they thought he was a blasphemer. Jesus could have buried them under tons of stone in a split second if he wanted to. But he withheld some of his divine advantage. He didn't do it. Uh, mocking him and calling him names. Oh, the son of Mary, you know, you don't have a daddy. You're illegitimate. That's what they were saying to him. Jesus could have erased every single one of them from the planet that he had created. He could have wiped them all out in short order, but he didn't. He didn't exercise all his divine advantage. How about when they scourged him? That's when they whipped him before he was crucified and you'd have pieces of bone or metal or, or glass that would be on the end of the, the whip, on the tails of the whip, and it would bury in the flesh and then it would be jerked out, tearing and ripping the flesh, nerves that are traumatized and raw. He could have turned those cat and nine tails around on them in a millisecond and giving those who were afflicting this pain on him some real pain. But again, he didn't do it. He withheld some of his divine advantage. When they, when they nailed him to the cross, making fun of him, putting a sign above him, king of the Jews, auctioning off his clothes, his garments, he's there naked, calling him names, even spitting on him, spitting on him. Oh, wow. Jesus could have lowered the boom on them in an instant, but again, he didn't. Verse eight, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death unto a cross. Some historically have liked to preach this text in a three-part alliteration. They like to call this the crown, the cradle, and the cross. And yes, it's one thing to enter the world incognito, being born of a peasant couple in a barn, but it's quite another to be publicly displayed on a cross for tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of people who were in Jerusalem at that time to see, and frankly, for the whole rest of the world to see throughout human history from that point on. And we do, however, know the rest of the story. Death could not hold him. The grave could not hold him. In fact, he didn't just rise from the dead either. He ascended into heaven. 
He went right back to glory where he came from on the 40th day. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And verse 9 tells us, therefore, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. The one who humbled himself is now the most exalted one, the highest place of all. No office is higher, no being is higher, no angels are higher, no ruler is higher. Jesus outranks them all. And there's more. God gave him a name that's beyond every name. And yes, names carry a lot of weight. Think of the name Alexander the Great. Many people know about him from before the time of Christ. Or how about Caesar or Paul? Or more recently, Queen Elizabeth, who just passed away. I mean, people, if they knew she was traveling in England or some other parts of the world, they would line up for hours just to catch a passing glimpse of her. Or use the name Michael Jordan. Or Tom Brady, the goats, you know, the greatest of all time in their sports. Or Shaquille O'Neal, who we see on television all the time in commercials. Shaq. Or Aaron Rodgers, a household name for many in our country. Or when presidential candidate Donald Trump and four years later, presidential candidate Joe Biden came to town, the city of Superior pretty much shut down. Every law enforcement officer in the region was on duty that day. They were called in to help out even game wardens. All the game wardens regionally had to help out. And that's the power of a name. Now you or I go to Superior, nobody takes notice, okay? There's no ticker tape parades. They're not shutting down any city streets because Daryl Nelson's going down Banks Avenue today. They don't do that. He's flying into the airport today. They don't do any of that stuff. But that's the power of a name. And Jesus has a name that's above every other name. And it says in verses 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow and worship. Do you realize that means every atheist out there That means at the return of Christ and when judgment day comes, that means every single agnostic, those who say, well, I'm not sure there's a God, but I'm not sure there isn't a God either. Herod is going to bow. Stalin, that pastor's kid and seminarian who turned his back on God, that socialist and communist and Marxist. Everyone, including Satan, will confess that Jesus is Lord. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 24 says, they will say of me, In the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him to be put to shame. Ruler after ruler is going to step forward and confess Jesus. The rich, the poor, the educated, the illiterate, young and old, the faithful and the degenerate. Those who love Jesus and serve and worship him here on earth will gladly confess Jesus is Lord. And those who have not followed Jesus in their life on earth will also confess Jesus as Lord, but they'll do it shamefully and it'll be too late for them because they will spend eternity separated from God. The great theologian C.S. Lewis said in one of his broadcasts back in the 20th century in England, God will invade. When that happens, it's the end of the world. When the author walks on the stage, The play is over. For this time, it will be with God 
without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen. Each one of us must humble ourselves before the one who humbled himself for us so that he would come to this earth and pay the penalty for our sin on the cross. And we must do it before Christ's second coming. We must do it before our own passing from this earth. The Bible says in John 15, verse 13, that no greater love has anyone than this, than would lay down their life for a friend. That's what Jesus did for us. He humbled himself, leaving glory, laying down his life for us, paying the penalty for our sin. And it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that salvation is found in no one else. There's no other path to that mountaintop than Jesus. There's no other way to find than Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. Confess Christ as Savior and Lord of your life before the time comes when everyone else will be doing the same thing. When, when everybody else does it, it's going to be too late for those who didn't do it in advance. As the song says, the greatest joy remains for those who gladly choose you now. That's where the greatest joy is going to be. Would you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you on this Christmas day uh, for the loving promise of your son, Jesus. And yes, we celebrate a, the birth of a baby and these humble means, and we remember the glory of all of that in your first coming. But we also remember why you came, to go to the cross, to pay the penalty for our sin, to provide a pathway from people, from humanity, to you, O oh God that by faith in you, believing in this gift, receiving this gift of Christmas, that we can have life eternal and we can, uh, God, spend eternal with, eternity with you and with all of our loved ones who've passed on in this very same faith. So God, thank you for this important reminder today. And I thank you, God, even to knowing that, that before it's too late, you give us these opportunities time and time again to gladly choose you now. And so I pray that for each one of us here and for those listening online, that each one of us would say yes to you, God, would confess Jesus as Savior and Lord of our lives before it is too late. So I give this to you now and thank you for the gift of Christmas in Jesus' name. Amen.